Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of Finance Simplified, recapping what we think the best insights are from each of the last 30 episodes. We know it's been a few months since our last episode, as college has been incredibly busy this first semester back in person, but we've selected one response from each of our past episodes with guests to provide you guys with some simplified financial wisdom heading into the holiday season. Each of these insights are in order of when the corresponding episode was released, so you'll hear some of our older guests first and then transition to hearing our newer ones. For each episode, we will explain the context behind the question and the response. Before we get started with the episode, we want to thank everyone who listened to the podcast this past year and supported us. We're constantly looking to connect with you guys to know how to make this podcast better, so please feel free to contact us with any feedback and suggestions at fspodcast at streetfins.com. Now, with that being said, let's get into the best insights from episodes 1 through 30. Welcome to Finance Simplified, the official podcast for Streetfins created by students that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. We're your hosts, Rohan and Alex. This insight comes from episode one, Simplifying Venture Capital with Josh Stein in 2019 when I asked him how venture capitalists exactly compete with each other on the basis of something called smart money. Right. So with that management, you, you, you mentioned that you're running the business right now, and that means you have to kind of compete with other venture firms for limited partners as well as entrepreneurs. So I, I want to talk mm-hmm. about that idea of, of smart money and how you define it and view it, as well as how venture capitalists compete based on that idea of smart money. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, money really is the ultimate commodity, right? You know, my million dollars is the same as anyone else's million dollars. Um, so if I'm an entrepreneur and I have options of who I'm going to raise money from, and good companies always have options uh, because there's you know capital seeking to um, invest with them, you know, how we win is based on everything that we bring around that. So I think a big chunk of that is that we have very relevant experience in building similar companies. So if I'm sitting down with a SaaS company now, I can say, look, I, uh, you know, had a ground floor seat uh, as we were building companies like Box and, and Twilio to really significant scale and IPOs. And at this point, I've probably worked with 20 or 30 companies in my career. As companies scale, the challenges they face are always a little bit unique to each company, but there's a lot of ones that are pretty common. For example, there's a classic breakpoint for companies up between 50 and 100 employees where communication tends to break down because a lot of things that you are relying on informal communication, hallway conversations just don't work anymore when you have more than a certain number of people. Or whether you're thinking about upgrading management, let's say your VP of sales is popping out in their capability and how do you think about replacing him or her? You know, those are things that we've seen before. And we can, much like a good teacher, I think we can help uh, founders avoid making the same old mistakes. So I, I sometimes say to people, if I do my job well, you'll make new mistakes instead of making the old classic mistakes. Um, so we can sort of help them see around corners for a little bit. There's also a lot of things that we invest in as a company to try and make sure we're adding value. So for example, I have a talent partner who works for us who was the head of executive recruiting at Box a marketing partner who was a partner at a major PR agency. Um, Both of those resources are available to our portfolio companies where we help them source executive talent and uh, help with their marketing and awareness. You know, but it's really a, a broad range of things. I think at the end of the day, what most founders we talk to end up doing is talking to our existing founders and CEOs and saying, hey, how helpful are Josh and the team at Threshold? And the answers they get are what help us win competitive deals. 
This insight comes from episode two, Simplifying Risk and Market Cycles with Howard Marks in 2019, when I asked him how he defines risk. So let's delve into risk now. Um, You're really known for your insightful investing philosophies that you document through your books, your memos, other interviews you've had. Uh, And one of the greatest things that you emphasize is working with risk and how to manage it. Could you just kind of define how you see risk, uh, just as an intro to hopefully a, a broader discussion about it? Well, you know, Rowan, I'm a professional investor. And I think that the difference, the distinguishing characteristic of an outstanding professional is what he or she does with regard to risk. Investing it should not be just about trying to make money. It's, it's not hard to make money as an investor. That's especially true when the market goes up, and most of the time, the market goes up. So just making money cannot be the mark of a good investor. And in fact, in the years in which the market goes up, which is most years, the person who takes the most risk makes the most money. So again, it's not just returns or even high returns that distinguish a professional. To my way of thinking, a professional is someone who makes a lot of money when the market goes well but who also, because he thought about risk and controlled the risk in his portfolio, doesn't lose a lot of money when the market does badly. That combination is, for me, the mark of of an outstanding professional. It's easy to make a lot of money in the good years if you're willing to lose a lot of money in the bad years. But to make a lot in the good years and not lose a lot in the bad years, I think, is a great accomplishment. It demonstrates what I call an asymmetry an asymmetry. It's easy, like I say, to make a lot of money in the good years if you're willing to lose a lot of money in the bad years, but it's not much of an accomplishment. The real accomplishment is the asymmetry, the imbalance of doing well in the good years and not so badly in the bad years. So I think that risk is the hallmark. Risk management is the hallmark of an outstanding investor. And I believe that outstanding investors are people who understand, who can recognize situations where they'll make a lot of money if things go well and not lose too much if things go poorly. And again, to me, that's the kind of investments I want to make. Now, whatever I say today about investing, remember, as I know you will, that this is my personal point of view. This is what I like to think about. This is how I view things. My views are not the only correct way. There are people who say, to hell with risk management. I want to make a mint in the good years, and I'm willing to experience volatility and even losses in the bad years. You know, I'm thinking about an individual who has a fabulous track record in terms of his, his lifetime rate of return and has had some really terrible years, but his good years are off the charts. My good years aren't that great, but my bad years were quite palatable. So I produced a good return with stability and resistance to losses. And for me, that's how I want to make my way. This insight comes from Episode 3, Simplifying Valuation with Aswath Damodaran in 2019 when I asked him about the inherent nature of valuation being an estimate. So one thing I've sort of learned throughout the past year is that valuations, they're, they're never exact. They're always just estimates. Could you kind of talk about that, that idea that the inherent nature of a valuation is that it's an estimate? In fact, again, if you, if you think about it, don't over-intellectualize this, right? Why is it an estimate? 
Why is valuation in S3? Well, there's just a lot of uncertainty and lack of information all the time. Where's the uncertainty coming from? Future. Future. I mean, here's, here's a very simple exercise. Get up every morning, look into the mirror and say, I am not God. Hey, none of us is. So when you are valuing a company, you are playing God, right? You're making judgments about the future. Guess what? Those judgments are going to be wrong, not because you haven't collected enough information. People often make that mistake. If I collect more information, I'm going to get more certain. Hey, that's not going to happen. In the case of Beyond Meat, you can collect every piece of information on this market out there. And you're going to still be uncertain. Why? Because we don't know what the future will bring. We don't know how fast global warming is going to be. We don't know what laws governments might pass and how much meat you can eat. Those are all in the future. So when people say, is valuation uncertain? Again, they say, wait, now, what do you think? Of course it's uncertain. We're making judgments about a future that's, that's uncertain. And that uncertainty is going to be there no matter how much information you collect and how big your model gets. Uncertainty, I mean, it's, it's the nature of the process. So I think what you have to do is learn to live with the uncertainty rather than fight. What gets people into trouble is being in denial. They don't want to deal with uncertainty. They want to push it under a rock and act like it's not there. I tell people, face up to it. Accept the fact you're uncertain. Accept the fact that you're going to be wrong 100% of the time. Except the fact that you've got to constantly revisit your story and valuation. This insight comes from episode four, Simplifying Brexit with Dr. Harold James in early 2020 when I asked him about currency movements during the time of Brexit. I also want to, because a lot of our listeners are, are students, I wanted to talk a little bit about the currency markets of the, more more particularly the pound and the euro. So could you kind of give, a, give us a quick primer on, on currency movements and the dynamics of currency markets? Well, the more uncertainty there has been about Brexit, the more sentiment has developed against the British pound. And so the pound has fallen quite significantly on the exchange markets. It fell immediately after the referendum. And it's been falling in the recent weeks because of the perception that the outcome will be a kind of no deal or a hard exit. You can see also immediately there is a sense of some kind of compromise, some kind of movement, the pound rebounds. It's, it's I think, like the issue that we discussed before, that the uncertainty is pretty killing. If the uncertainty were ended in some way or another, you might get much more of a stabilization. But at the moment, the sentiment on the markets is worry and concern about the economic and financial consequences of a no-deal Brexit. And you know we, we've seen also just over the last days increased global uncertainty. Brexit is one of the things, along with the China-U.S. trade conflict, that is feeding into a global uncertainty. So that uncertainty obviously feeds into less demand for that currency, and that obviously drives down the price. And, and then the other currency in question is is the euro. So how has that been impacted, and how has that that currency moved based on the uncertainty? The euro has uh, weakened significantly since the early stages of the euro crisis. But that's actually, from the point of view of many Europeans, desirable. It's probably an unintended consequence of the policies of the European Central Bank in the quantitative easing and bond purchase programs that the ECB has adopted. But it, it, it does also mean that the European currency at the moment is comparatively weak against the dollar. And from the perspective of the United States, 
some people, including the president, believe that this is a kind of unfair competition and that the Fed should do more to be like the ECB and to talk down the dollar to some extent. This insight comes from Episode 5, Simplifying Cryptocurrencies with Tim Draper in 2020, when I asked him how he views and defines cryptocurrencies. So the way you would define cryptocurrencies is basically like virtual money, virtual currency, as compared to like fiat today. Here's the way I would describe it. Way back when, if I wanted to trade, let's say you have the farm and I have the house. And if we don't do a deal, I starve and you die of exposure. So we've got to create some liquidity in the market. So the way we have done that in the past is through a third party who holds money because you'd have to figure out how many pineapples and persimmons and avocados add up to one month of rent and figure out how that would work. And banks were this third party that was trusted that that could say, okay, well, you price the avocados and the persimmons and the pineapples and I'll price one month of rent in my house and will cut a deal that doesn't have to, it doesn't make me eat, you know, only those three fruits or vegetables. I can eat some of those, but then I I give you rent in exchange and you give me a little bit more so that I can go out and buy some meat or something else that I want to eat. And so that's how currency started. Well, then the banks became quite powerful. And then the governments got involved there where the banks were kind of unregulated and and ran a little wild. Then the the governments came in and created a central bank. And that central bank helped decide, like the central bank would loan money out to banks at a certain rate. The banks would take that money and loan it out to all of us. Well, what happened then was the banks and the governments became very heavy handed and they now control all the currency of the world or they did up until Bitcoin came along. And in some countries, Argentina or Nigeria or Venezuela or many others, the governments became a little abusive of their people and the currencies would drop in value extraordinary rates. So, you know, if you have a dollar today, it's like um, having a dollar five tomorrow or a dollar three tomorrow. But if you're ha- if if you have a Nigerian naira today, it's like having two and a half Nigerian naira in a year. It's right, it's hyperinflationary. It's hyperinflationary. You end up the value of that currency becomes so useless that you try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. What happened here was Bitcoin came and said, hey, there are only going to be 21 million of them and it's global. And so you don't have to be tied to a government or any kind of political force. You can be just open and transparent and global and you go across borders. So here's a currency that is not affected by government. So let's say you're in Syria and you're a wealthy family in Syria, and the military comes in and pushes you out and says, get out of here. Well, you've got Syrian money. You, you go into Greece, and you're now a refugee, and you have Syrian money, which no one will take. And so you're out of luck. But if you had 
some portion of that money in Bitcoin, you could just go to Greece and start your life over with your Bitcoin. It, it got me incredibly excited because suddenly there was a currency that was digital and virtual, but it was also not tied to any political force. So it's not tied to these people in government who have, you know, really tell us all what to do. And I love the freedom of it and that it was open and cross-border. And, you know, I like that, that feeling. This insight comes from Episode 6, Simplifying Market Design and Game Theory, with Dr. Alvin Roth in 2020 when I asked him about how he views college admissions as a marketplace. Right. And in your book, which I did read, uh, Who Gets What and Why, it talks a lot about, I mean, I'm in high school, so I really resonated with the parts about like the college admissions process. I'm a senior right now. I'm applying to many places. And you kind of talk about how the college admissions process is a market in and of itself. So I was wondering if you could explain to our audience that, that viewpoint. Well, college admissions is, is certainly a market. Colleges sell higher education and they, they sell, sell it to students. And the students, you know, are, are interested in going to college. And as you say, you apply to many places because the market doesn't clear by price alone. College admissions is not a commodity market where Stanford admits you know, anyone who can pay the tuition and raises the tuition until the demand equals the supply. It's a matching market where you can't just choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. So you can't just come study at Stanford because you can afford the tuition. You have to be admitted. And of course, Stanford also can't just decide which students to hire. It has to compete for students with, with Cal and with Harvard and, and MIT. So these are matching markets and prices don't do all the work. It, it's not, an, you know, when you, when you put together your college admission, you are doing more, your college application, you're doing more than saying, here's my financial statement, I can afford tuition. You are saying, look at me, I would be a good member of your freshman class. And that's a very different thing. And that makes matching markets, of which there are many, a little bit like marriage. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. You can't just choose your job. You also have to be hired. So many, many markets are not simply commodity markets where prices do all the work. And a lot of those, as you mentioned, the, the college market, it's a lot about the uh, individual person, I guess, selling themselves, but also the the other party, the college, the, the company also choosing them as well. Um, Absolutely. So it's, you know, when I say it's like marriage, it, there's a lot of courtship involved. Right? We should tell you why Stanford is a good place to, to come and study, and you should tell us why you would be a, a good member of the class. And, and then the, mar- the job of the marketplace, the job of the market is to make matches. You, know, you get admitted to a number of places and you decide where to go. There might be discussion of financial aid in that process. There might be discussion of what you want to study. So, so there's a, a courtship, and, and many of the features of the market are designed to help the market clear without using prices to equate supply and demand. So there are uh, applications and interviews and essays and campus visits, all of those things are, are designed to help sort out who goes. This insight comes from Episode 7, Simplifying Behavioral Economics with Dr. John List in 2020, when I asked him about how he views money as an incentive. Gotcha. So when reading your book, I mean, the one takeaway I got from that was that, I mean, you go to great lengths in it to show that people just respond to incentives. That's kind of the basis for most of humans' behavior, whether those incentives are monetary or not. So my next question is, when does money really work as, a, as an incentive and when does it not? That's a really good question. And it's one that both my team and many other teams are currently exploring. 
but, but let me give you an example in each of the camps to give you and the listeners some intuition about when money might work and when it might backfire. So if I look at our data at Lyft and I look at when I raise prices for trips, what do you think happens when I raise the price of a trip? Do you think people consume more or less of it? We'd assume they'd consume less because it's more expensive. Exactly. So that's called the law of demand. And in economics, unlike physics, we don't have many laws. But the law of demand says as prices go up, the quantity demanded goes down. That's exactly what happens nearly every time. Likewise for drivers. If we increase their wages, what happens is they end up working more. And that's called the law of supply. So, so in that case, we can use money to predictably increase labor supply. Where on the demand side, we can use money to predictably increase quantity demanded by lowering price. So in those types of situations, Money, it works basically every time without fault. Now, there are other situations where using pecuniary incentives or financial incentives might backfire. Let's, uh, let's think about this story. So let's say that every morning I take out to my curb, I walk out of my front door, and I have a bag of aluminum cans. And I put those cans on the curb every morning, whether it's raining, whether it's storming, whether there's snow and sleet. Every morning, I put those cans out on the curb. And when there's no financial incentive, my neighbors look at me and they say, wow, isn't John a great guy? He is an environmental steward who really cares about the future of the earth, he's recycling. John should be celebrated. Okay, that's great. Now let's say that we're in a world where every can I put out on the curb, I receive a dime. So now let's say I still do the same activity. Every morning, I take a bag of aluminum cans out to the curb, and it's raining, it's snowing, etc. I still do it. Now, how do my neighbors interpret my actions? What they say is, oh my God, look at that economist. He'll do anything for a dime. <laughs> this guy will do cans in the winter, etc., etc. This guy's a miser. I, I thought he was better off than that. I didn't think he was that foolish. So now what, what that leads to is when we add financial incentives to an activity that I'm doing because maybe my self-image or my social image, if we muddy those waters with a financial incentive, I might actually do less of it. So now that people think ill of me, maybe no longer in the morning will I walk a bag of cans out because everyone thinks I'm a miser now. I'd rather help the environment in a different way rather than have people call names. So that's the trick is if we understand the underlying motivation, in that particular case, the underlying motivation might have been, I want to protect my 
social image, or I want to feel good about myself. When we add money to those situations, if we don't add enough money, what we found is that incentives can backfire. And this goes all the way back to work on early blood donations by a psychologist named Desi in the early 70s, who found that when you add financial incentives to blood donations, there's a possibility that you can actually have less blood donated because you've added financial incentives. And I think part of the story there is exactly the story that I just told you and the listeners. This insight comes from Episode 8, Simplifying Racial Economic Inequality with Dr. William Darity Jr. in 2020, when I asked him about the most important figures people should be paying attention to when considering the history of racial economic inequality. Thanks for all that history, Dr. Darity. A lot of it seemed to me that there were several key moments where Black communities were denied access to building wealth, whether that was the destruction of prosperous communities like in Durham or in Tulsa as well as through the racist housing practices, as well as the initial 40-acre, the Special Orders 15 that was never delivered. So what are some of the outcomes of that today? So what are like some of the statistics that people should be paying attention to that discrimination in the past has caused? In the new book that Kirsten Mullen and I have written, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, We actually argue that you need to examine racial wealth differences to capture the full cumulative intergenerational effects of the kinds of damages that have been imposed on Black Americans, particularly the economic damages that have been imposed on Black Americans. So we look at the racial wealth differential as the best index of the entire historical trajectory of atrocities that have taken place under the orbit of white supremacy in the United States. So one of the statistics that I think is very useful is the fact that we can recognize that globally, there's approximately $300 trillion in wealth, and about $100 trillion or one-third of that is held by households in the United States. And out of that, 90% is held by white Americans. In contrast, Black Americans, although constituting 13% of the nation's population, only possess about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. This results in, in the following kind of disparity. The average Black household has a net worth of $800,000 less than the average white household. Another way to think about these kinds of disparities is among white American households, about 25% have a net worth in excess of $1 million, but only 4% of black households have a similar level of net worth. Furthermore, if you were to consider the poorest whites in the United States, say folks whose incomes are in the lowest 20%, of the income distribution. Those individuals, the lowest income whites, have a higher median value of wealth than all Black Americans taken together. I think it's really critical to distinguish between wealth and income because people frequently confuse the two, where income is a flow of resources that comes to you 
we usually frequently calculate it across a year, a flow of resources that's primarily associated with your earnings. Whereas wealth is the net value of your property. It's the difference between what you owe and what you own. It's also another way to think about it is your assets minus your debts. And what's particularly significant about wealth is it permits you to have or execute or exercise a wide range of opportunities that you would be denied in the absence of those resources. So for example, if you have a shortfall in income that might be due to a loss of a job or a medical catastrophe, if you are in a wealthier household, that type of storm can be weathered more easily. This insight comes from episode nine, simplifying the dot-com bubble with Heidi Roizen in 2020, when I asked her about why she thinks certain companies made it through the dot-com bubble. Looking forward after the dot-com bubble burst, some of the famous tech companies that we see today, like Amazon, Google, eBay, they made it out alive. Could you go more and elaborate what about those companies made them so resilient to all the market dynamics going on at that time? I'll speak in the generic to all of them. I mean, I think they're all a different story, but fundamentally, they found business models that worked and they had enough capital to sustain them through to the point of profitability. And that's basically a fundamental recipe for anything, right? Is do you make something that people are willing to pay more for than it costs you to make it? And can you build your company up to that point through you know, the equity you have to raise to do that? And as long as those two things are true, you'll make it out the other side. And, you know, I look at the current situation. I think you will see some companies fail because there were certain business models predicated on a growing economy. And when that economy is not growing, some of those business models don't work. When people start spending less money because they're making less money, they start cutting certain spending habits that will be pervasive across and things will die and go away. And so any entrepreneur today, you have to think about, you know, the world isn't how you wish it could be or what it was like in January. The world is the world today and it's probably going to be this way for a while. And so can you create a product that people are willing to pay more for it than it costs you? And can you fund yourself to get there? And so it really does boil down to some pretty simple basics for me. Now, that's not to say that you aren't going to see people make and lose money on some of these stocks that are going to be very volatile in this time. Because one thing about volatility is, you know, on any given day, there's the opportunity to make or lose a lot of money, depending on what side of that you are on, even if at the end of the day, the fundamentals aren't any different. This insight comes from episode 10, Simplifying Hedge Funds with Anthony Scaramucci in 2020 when I asked him about his advice for students and kids. This is probably my favorite insight so far. All right. So my final question, and this is something I ask all my guests, is now that you've had all this experience in finance and experience, obviously, with politics, too, but just all this experience that you've gained in finance, economics, learning about other people, what are some of the lessons that you've passed on to your own children about money? And uh, Mm -hmm. what, what advice do you have for students? I know you've mentioned quite a bit of advice already, but sort of like a synthesis of all that. I'm going to be very blunt, very honest about this. You know, so my children have a different relationship with money than I have. And so I didn't have any growing up. And my family was in the middle class, but we were watching the money very carefully. And we were on a very, very tight budget. And so we learned to deal with things differently. You know, we didn't have, you know, we had 
air conditioning, but we had to put the air conditioning into the window and take it out of the window at the end of the summer. And you know, listen, nothing, nothing wrong with that. My kids grew up with central air conditioning. You know, my kids grew up with more than one house that they could go to. You know, they have a summer house and they have a, a ski house and they have a regular house. You know, and so the point being is that they have a different relationship with money than I did. They're a little bit safer in their minds, a little bit more secure with money. But the flip side is I have to teach them how to make it so that they can always be prosperous. They can always make sure that their standard of living can be met by the money that they have. And so here's the three things that I would say. Number one, you have to be a saver. You have to live below your means. Number two, you have to understand those laws of compounding. You have to understand that if you get a 7% return, you're going to double your money every 10 or so years. A 10% return, you're going to double it every 7.2 years. And if you can double your money, okay, and you can double your money three times in 30 years, and you're a good saver, you know, you, you're going to do very, very well in your life. And so I'm going to recommend a book to you guys, not one of my own, called The Richest Man in Babylon. And it was written by George Clason, C-L-A-S-O-N. And certainly Howard Marks, I'm an investor of Howard's. I think he's a brilliant guy. You should read his books as well. But this book is a very basic book about how to think like a rich person and what do rich people do to stay rich and what do people, which, what do rich people do to become rich. It's only about a 200-page book, and I would recommend it to everybody that's listening to your podcast. It was a big, had a big impact on me when I was a kid. This insight comes from Episode 11, Simplifying the COVID-19 Market with Morgan Housel in 2020 when my co-host Cassie Ying asked him about how he views history and his approach to investing. So uh, Rohan and I are both really interested in, as you said, the intersection between the history, the psychology, and more of the hard power, the the stats, the data, um, and how these all form an investor's uh, basic philosophy. So how would you say these three have interacted in forming the core of your behavioral approach to investing? I'm I'm just interested in looking back at history and saying, what are the common things that keep popping up in terms of what investors do right and do wrong? Because if there are things that show up throughout history, things that people have done in 2020 and 2008 and 1960 and 1860, these things that keep coming up again and again, those are the kind of things that we are likely to conclude are just fundamental attributes of human behavior that we can put a lot of emphasis in and say, this is going to be a part of our future because these are things that that never change. They never go away. So I'm just interested in those really broad topics. I also want to make it so that there are only a handful of things that I put a ton of of weight into in investing rather than trying to make a really complicated model with lots of moving parts and you know focusing on on dozens of different variables i just want to say what are like the five big things that i can focus all my attention on that's going to have the biggest influence on my in my financial returns over the course of my lifetime so things like if you just take a really simple model, let's make it you know a three-variable model and say, live below your means so you're saving some money, invest for the long term, as in more than 10 years is your time horizon, and expect and accept there to be volatility, that the market's going to go up and down, there's going to be stresses and booms and busts. That to me is like 90% of what you need to know about finance. It's 90%. Even if you are a professional investor, a financial advisor, those three things, save some money, invest for the long-term, expect volatility, that's the vast majority of what you need to know. And so if I can just look at history and just focus on those topics, who has done well 
with those three things? Who has not done well with those three things? Why have they not done well? What was their mindset that caused them to take a different approach and to be swayed away from those three things? Those are the topics that I'm really interested in because I think they're interesting to learn about. There's so much history that you can learn. There's so many examples to learn from among those three topics, but they're also just going to be the most relevant to me personally for dealing with my own money. So those, those three things are the biggest kind of drivers of what I do with my own money. And they're very simple by design. There's nothing, should be nothing controversial about that. There's nothing surprising about any of those. But maybe like that's the thing. It's the the really simple, basic, non-surprising stuff that moves the needle. In the same way that if I said, eat your vegetables and get some exercise and you'll be in better health, it's not exciting. It's not surprising. It doesn't cause anyone to say, oh, wow, that's amazing. I never thought of that. It's none of that, but it works. It's really effective. So no one wants to hear it, but people don't necessarily follow it. They still eat donuts and sit on the couch. And so that really simple, basic stuff, just like with health, is true for finance too, that it's the really simple, basic stuff that is the most important, but it's also that we are most likely to overlook over time. This insight comes from episode 12, Simplifying Automated Money Management with Andy Ratcliffe in 2020, when my co-host Alex asked him about how he thinks technology will impact the financial industry. Yeah. I'm interested in talking about the future of finance. And I guess I'll preface that by saying throughout this whole conversation, we've been talking about attitude shifting and millennials and Gen Z wanting something different in terms of how their money is managed. And also, you know, Wealthfront is sort of on this cutting edge of the use of technology and fintech. Looking over the next kind of 50 years, where do you see technology impacting investing? And do you see a rapid change or are traditional finance firms, the investment banks, the uh, personal wealth managers going to try to stop this? And, and do you see a big shift in an inflection point, maybe? Sure. I think it's a lot like travel agents. You know, most people think that travel agents no longer exist because of all of the great travel services available on the Internet. But actually, I think travel agents still represent at least 30% of all trips that are booked. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> you wouldn't have thought that, would you? Oh, but no, you, not at all. So what tra- the reason that the travel agents have been able to stay in business is they changed what they did. The internet commoditized much of what they did. So in order to survive, travel agents either focused on an older clientele who still wanted to talk to someone, or they went higher end to focus on booking trips that were perhaps too complex for what is possible on the internet or profitable for software-based vendor to deliver on the internet. So they went higher end and older. I think the same thing is going to happen with financial advisory services as automated investing takes over more and more. Now, the research is really clear that active management doesn't work, but active management only represents about half of the fund business today, mutual fund or ETF business. And that's because hope springs eternal. People still think that maybe they are capable of outperforming. It's really interesting. You wouldn't think of picking up a scalpel to perform a surgery, but because you read about companies on the web or in a newspaper, you think you can pick a stock. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we're really seeing an explosion today. Every 15 years, we see an explosion in day trading, and then people who get killed by it stop doing it. 
So I think that we're going to see active management around for a long time because hope springs eternal. This insight comes from episode 13, Simplifying the U.S. Treasury Part 1 with Sarah Bloom Raskin in 2020, when my co-host Alex asked her about how the U.S. Treasury manages the public debt. Right. When you think of treasury, you really just think of, I think, minting coins and maybe treasury bonds and treasury bills, but the scope is truly unprecedented. Now, I do have a question about more specifically the debt, and I think this is going to be something that is a big topic going forward, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. But how does the Treasury manage the public debt, and what is the debt ceiling? Right. So you're exactly right to know that this is another function of Treasury and that this function is very important to the financial condition of our country. So the Treasury Department is, in fact, the issuer of debt. And remember, I mentioned the IRS, you know, there's really two forms of the way in which Treasury finances the activities of the U.S. And one way is through tax receipts. So it takes in the money that people pay who are members of our society. But it has another way to bring in money, and that is by issuing debt. And that debt is a special kind of debt. It's a security, and it can take the form of either a treasury bill, which is very short term, or a treasury bond, which has a longer duration and comes in different flavors of duration. So we have experts at the Treasury Department who know the best mix of what that debt issuance should look like. So they are responsible for advising the Secretary of the Treasury on questions of how much debt should be issued and in what denominations. And the issuance of that debt becomes a very important function of our economy. As you know, treasuries are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. So in other words, our security here in the US is such that if you lend money to the Treasury Department, you will get it back, okay? If you lend money to the U.S., you will get it back. It is backed by what we call the full faith and credit. So treasuries are a very important instrument that are used to finance our economy. And as you know, and as people who work in the private sector know, there are traders who actually trade treasuries and are expert in what the value is of those treasuries at any given time. So Debt issuance turns out to be a very important function for any advanced economy. And in the U.S., as in other countries, that function sits with the finance ministry or the Treasury Department. This insight comes from Episode 14, Simplifying the U.S. Treasury Part 2, with Sarah Bloom Raskin in 2020, when my co-host Alex asked her about how the Treasury manages a crisis. So... We started this conversation off with you telling us that you really got pulled into this economic side of government through the financial crisis. And I'm interested in learning more about what is the Treasury Department's role in a financial crisis? And maybe you can talk a little bit about 2008 and TARP and all these different things. What does the Treasury do when America has an economic crisis? Great question. Yes. So what Treasury's role is, is to really stay ahead of risks that are on the horizon. 
So this is the one part in the universe (laughs) where people are coming together to think about what could come down the pike that could hurt economic prosperity in our country. What kind of situation, what kind of configuration of events might transpire that could create a threat to the economic well-being of the U.S. government and the U.S. people. So I think of Treasury as being one of the places where that kind of thought occurs, where people come together to try to get a jump on new emerging risks. Now, before the financial crisis, many would argue that, and many have argued that Treasury and different parts of the U.S. government were asleep at the switch, that things were happening in markets, in housing, that were actually creating risk and that nobody was staying ahead of it, that it wasn't being looked at carefully enough. And that's a whole separate debate as to the extent to which that's true. But I think one big lesson that came out of the financial crisis was that the U.S regulatory structure needed to be stronger than it was, that activities were happening that were highly corrosive to people's economic well-being. There was a sense that financial derivative instruments were out of control, were not very well understood, were being valued in a way that was unhinged from economic reality, that people were buying houses with mortgages with terms that were very hard to understand, and then they were getting caught up in these terms when economic conditions changed and losing their homes. And there was predatory behaviors that were occurring where people of a particular race were being steered into higher cost mortgages than other people. So a lot of allegations of racism that was embedded in mortgage broker activity. So there was really a lot going on here. And many argued that these factors contributed to what became the financial crisis, and that the federal government needed to do better, that this was in part a failure of government oversight. And so one of the lessons that came from the financial crisis was a need to create structural reform. And as you might know, there was a massive piece of reform done, maybe a thousand pages worth of reform that did things like created a new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and created oversight mechanisms for regulators across the federal government to come together more regularly and in a more disciplined way to talk about emerging risk. Centers for data collection that needed to be proactive were were legislated. So Congress put in place, and this was through the Dodd-Frank Act, put in place a massive and comprehensive set of reforms that would, in essence, keep a financial-like crisis from occurring. And the reforms, we could spend a whole hour just talking about what those reforms looked like. There were a lot of rules, regulatory rules that were changed. There were a lot of exercises, things like stress testing and global exercises with international counterparts, 
all of these things that we now take for granted in the country were put in place as a result of the financial crisis and had not existed in much of a rigorous way before. So, so I think that, you know, a long way of answering your question, Alex, is that is that the Treasury Department is the hub, really, for, for asking the kinds of questions that keep an economy and keep the participants in the economy ahead of risk. Now, when I was at Treasury, which was after the financial crisis, I started thinking about what a, another risk might be. And the risk I was thinking about at the time, which, by the way, I think is still a real risk, is the risk of a cybersecurity attack being launched in the financial sector of the U.S. in such a way that that would become highly destabilizing and could lead to a dramatic downturn. So the exercise of being at Treasury is to think through what some of these risks on the horizon might look like and how they transmit through an economy. There's tons of risk, by the way, that you know we can look at and say, okay, that's a risk, but it's not really a risk of financial stability. It's not going to bring about a recession. And we have to have those conversations. We have to talk about that. Here's We're living in a risk right now, the risk of a pandemic, right? So, you know, what does it mean for a pandemic to hit an economy and, and have an effect on the economy? And how can an economy prepare for that kind of risk? Another one I'm thinking about right now is climate change, right? What does a transition to a warmer climate mean for financial stability? So these are the kinds of questions that people who are interested in public policy of a financial nature are asking. And the Treasury Department and the different parts of it are a good home for people who are asking these questions and want to create some kind of preparedness for going forward. This insight comes from Simplifying Investment Banking Part 1 with Suzanne Nora Johnson in 2021 when my co-host Alex asked her about the basics of investment banking. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for kind of giving us a little overview of your story. And it's certainly an interesting one and maybe not as traditional as other people in finance. I do want to get into a little bit about the nitty-gritty of investment banking. So could you start by just explaining what is an investment bank and, and what is investment banking very broadly? Sure. And I think it's important to understand a little bit of the history. After the Great Depression in 1929, banks and investment banks were basically separated because during the Great Depression, banks could basically do anything. They could lend money, they could make risky investments, They could do all sorts of financial transactions. And part of the legislation that came out of the 20s depression was something called Glass-Steagall. And that really separated out the functions. And at that point, it was very clear that really all that commercial banks could do was lending of debt. Investment banks were the organizations that could make investments. They could trade in the markets. They could own stocks, they could own debt, they could own other securities. They were much riskier institutions. And after Glass-Steagall was passed, there were different sets of regulators, bank regulators for commercial banks and investment banks. And then later on, Glass-Steagall was repealed. And when it was repealed, basically commercial banks and investment banks became one and the same. 
So when I talk about investment banking today, I'm going to give you a sense of what investment banking looks like today, because all of the major banks in the U.S., when you think of major money center banks, so for example, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, they do the same things that the traditional investment banks, which included Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley do. And after the Great Recession in 2008, there was a very significant uproar that part of the reason the Great Recession and the crash of 2008 happened was because banks were allowed to do risky things. And again, at that point, when I say banks, I mean both investment banks and commercial banks. So when I talk about investment banking today, I'm going to talk about the whole portfolio of activities they do. If you look at that group, and then we can drill down on what some small investment banks might do that are different from that set of the majors. But why don't we talk about the majors first? And again, the majors are the traditional ones, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and then the money center banks that survived the 2008 recession. This insight comes from episode 16, Simplifying Investment Banking Part 2, with Suzanne Nora Johnson in 2021 when I asked her about the underwriting process in IPOs. One of the more important functions of an investment bank is, you know, IPOs, mergers and acquisitions. So let's just get started with the IPOs. The term that I guess is really used with an IPO is the term underwriting. So could you walk us through the process of underwriting and then also how that just generally leads to the IPO? So part of an investment bank's ability to sell an IPO is investors trusting that they're not selling them schlock. And that's a technical term for garbage. And investors want to believe that, in fact, what they are being offered has been reviewed and has been diligenced, meaning the analytical work has been done so that they can feel confident that the management team of the IPO are not crooks, are not frauds, even if they're clean, are they people that can actually run a business? They want to believe that the investment bank in the underwriting process has done checks to make sure that the suppliers and the customers and the products of that company that is taking public are all what they say they are. And that's easier to do from a retrospective, meaning a historical perspective, but they're also asking the investment banks to talk about what they think the prospects are for that business, one, surviving, growing, being able to pay dividends in the future. And so the underwriting process does require a lot of expertise and knowledge of the market. And that's where you need to count on the analytical rigor and honesty of both the sell side investment bankers and then their research colleagues who will be talking to investors and their sales colleagues that will be talking to investors to make sure that they can sell quality product. And so that underwriting process is usually structured in a way that there's a team on the particular transaction who's doing the work 
but it typically has to go to a very senior level committee in the firm. And some firms, that's the top of the house. And some firms, it's kind of a divisional top of the house to review the opportunity to see if it's really what people think it is. And so it's really a reputational issue for the investment banks because most investment banks, most offerings are not guaranteeing results. It's upon their reputation and their historical track record of bringing good IPOs to market. So if an investment bank has a poor track record of underwriting, their ability to sell IPOs to investors would get short-circuited very, very quickly. Now, sometimes it's not just the underwriting. It's what are the market conditions that you're selling into. And there may be certain market conditions that nothing can be sold because the market is so in peril. So you saw in March of this year when COVID became a widespread problem in the U.S., and had far-reaching economic impacts, there were certain stocks and there were certain IPOs that you couldn't do them, even if they were the highest quality companies in the world, because the market seized up. But absent when the market seizes up, you want to be able to have the credibility that people trust. The other thing that becomes critical, not just to the primary underwriting, but this goes back to the secondary market, is if I'm an investor and I buy an IPO company and all of a sudden the market gets really choppy, if I don't think that investment bank has the power in the secondary market to buy shares to help the price not fall through the floor, that gives me great pause too. And part of the reason that niche investment banks have a tougher time during certain market cycles is if they don't have the firepower to help in the secondary market, investors might get nervous. This insight comes from Episode 17, Simplifying Healthcare Economics Part 1, with Dr. Dana Goldman in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about the basics of healthcare economics. Thanks so much for a little bit on your background. And actually, I'd like to unpack a deeper understanding of healthcare economics. So can you kind of explain what maybe the central problem of healthcare economics is and maybe who's the supplier, who's the producer, and who's the consumer? Sure. And actually, as I said, economics is about how we allocate resources to meet objectives. And what makes health economics unique, I think, are some real failures of the market in very substantial ways. So for example, when I want to buy a smartphone, I can go to the store and I see the prices and I know how much utility or pleasure or value I'm going to derive from this good. And I figure out if it's worth it based on the price. And that's fundamental to the demand side of the market. And on the supply side, there are people, companies building phones and competing. Think about the healthcare market now. When I go to the doctor, I have no idea if this drug is going to give me utility or not, or this treatment. Is it really going to make me feel better? 
I don't know. I have to trust a third party, the physician, to tell me what is going to make my life better. So I've already lost some of the information about knowing what it is because I'm not an expert in this field. So this agency problem, which is common and endemic in several areas, is a problem that is endemic in healthcare. That is, we don't know what it is that gives us utility and we're relying on a third party. And then the second part of it is that often we're faced with making difficult decisions at the times when we're most vulnerable because we are sick, okay? And so when you're sick is probably the time you least want to price shop or do research or figure something out. And often you're buying something you've never bought before because it's an acute or new illness. And so all of these things mean that the demand side of the market doesn't work so well. And on the supply side, what we know is that this is a very highly regulated market. People are highly specialized and trained. In most markets, the fact that Apple or Samsung wants to make a profit is not viewed with any particular skepticism. We know that the suppliers do that. But for some reason, when we go into healthcare, if we think they're trying to make a profit, we're very skeptical as consumers. We don't want our doctors trying to make a profit. So the entire supply side of the market also operates differently. So it's highly regulated. We're skeptical of their motives. And it's also something that we can get into, but it's a highly concentrated market at this point. So for all these reasons, healthcare is a unique good with different issues. And that's why we have people who specialize in that area in the economics profession. This insight comes from episode 18, Simplifying Healthcare Economics Part 2, with Dr. Dana Goldman in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about how drug prices are determined. Something kind of related to pricing of drugs and particularly prescription drugs is this idea of inelasticity. And who really determines in the U.S. especially, who determines drug prices is the consumer, is the patient, or is the insurance company taking a price? How does this inelasticity factor work in healthcare markets? Okay, so the first thing is, and this comes back, how does the price determine? You have a very powerful manufacturer. You know, sometimes there are substitutes, close substitutes. Sometimes they're the only thing on the market. And so they have varying market power, but this is typical monopolistic competition. But then you also have a very powerful insurer. They know they have to provide something to their consumers, but they're representing large numbers of buyers. So, you know, when United Health negotiates with Pfizer over the price of a cancer drug, that's larger than when Switzerland negotiates with Pfizer. They probably have more members, or maybe it's about the same size. So these are behemoths negotiating prices. Now you asked about the elasticity. If demand is very inelastic, what that means is people will take, you know, if they have this illness, they're going to take it regardless of price or they're going to need it. That gives a lot more power to the manufacturer. If demand is very elastic, that is you charge a little more and fewer people will take it. 
well, then the manufacturer may have less market power. So this notion, how you bargain between these two behemoths depends a lot on the nature of demand and how elastic it is. And by the way, that elasticity, as you know from studying economics, depends on the availability of close substitutes. So if right now, if Pfizer were the only vaccine in town, that has a different dynamic than if there are lots of different vaccines that potentially the insurer could trade off against. This insight comes from Episode 19, Simplifying Quantitative Finance Part 1, with Aaron Brown in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about the basics of quantitative finance. Yeah, and you gave us pretty much a timeline of the evolution of quantitative finance and sort of your background. Now, I'd love to know a little bit about what exactly quantitative finance is and its applications. So what would a quant be doing? What are some of the applications today, maybe, in a fund where you worked at, such as AQR or other big ones, such as Citadel? What exactly do quants do and what exactly does quantitative finance mean today? Well, I would say the basic thing you're trying to do in quantitative finance today is come up with profitable investments. And quants tend to use systems. So it's algorithmic investing. They tend to be highly diversified. So if you're a traditional fundamental stock picker using qualitative information, you have to do a tremendous amount of work on each company. You know, you talk to the management, you try the product, you talk to suppliers, customers, regulators, and you make a qualitative judgment. And you might end up buying 10 stocks. And you better hope that eight of those 10 are successful because you don't have a lot of diversification. A quant strategy, by contrast, tends to buy a huge number of stocks. So at AQR, you know, we might have a fund that had 2,000 long stocks and 2,000 short stocks that were very carefully vetted to be almost exactly offsetting in risk. So there's very little residual risk. And out of that, we might hope that 51% of our longs went up and 51% of our shorts went down. So we're counting on diversification to make up for the fact that we cannot be anywhere near as accurate as a qualitative investor. We're making our investment decisions, or the computer is making them for us, based on a few accounting numbers, a few bits of data here and there, and it's making rapid evaluations of thousands of companies, something you just can't do with any great accuracy. But the diversification you get reduces your risk to the point where that can be a much more attractive sharp ratio, or not. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but when it works, it can be a much more attractive sharp ratio than a qualitative investor. Another big area of quant that is not so sought after after more is derivative pricing. So that used to be in the 1990s, early 2000s, that was a very, very big area. Entirely different kind of math, entirely different kind of goal. Trading algorithms, that's more of a computer science type of quantitative. So people who are trying to design either high-frequency trading systems to make profits or systems that execute your trades very efficiently. Big data, <clears throat> machine learning, those are really growing areas of quant where people are applying them, again, primarily to make good investments, but also for predicting macro events and that sort of thing. So I'd say those are the main areas of quantitative finance. And the biggest one, the one I started with, picking good investments, doesn't use advanced mathematics. You know, it's kind of simple, pretty simple mathematics, but you have to do it very rigorously. This insight comes from Episode 20, Simplifying Quantitative Finance Part 2, with Aaron Brown in 2021, when I asked him about important statistical concepts he pays attention to. So another question I had is, we mentioned some different mathematical 
concepts, standard deviation, as well as some of the those other things. But what are some other quantitative concepts that quantitative financial analysis uses? And I'm thinking of things like mean reversion. So what are some of the other concepts that you think are useful for quantitative financial analysis? Mean reversion and trend following. So those are kind of two parallel things are extraordinarily important. And they're so simple. One very basic set of quantitative techniques is trend following. You know, bet that the stuff that went up yesterday will go up tomorrow or go up today. Mean reversion is another very simple, very powerful one. Bet that the things that went up yesterday are going to go down today. There's a very old idea in finance, goes back to the 1950s, called the random walk hypothesis. And the random walk hypothesis basically says studying the past path of prices tells you nothing about the future movements. Okay, so both trend following and mean reversion are violations of the random walk. Trend following says, you know, if it's going up, it's going to keep going up on average, you know, 51% of the time. But if you make thousands and thousands of trades, you can make this into a very safe, profitable strategy. Mean reversion says things are going to come back. Now, one of the arguments for the random walk is that if security prices aren't random walks, people can make consistent profits, right? If looking at the past path of prices gives you some hint of where they're going in the future, people can make profits. If, you know, trend following is right, if a trend begins, everyone should jump on the trend and the trend should, you know, shoot up in price to the point where there is no longer any future trending. But when you actually look at financial prices, what you see virtually always is there is a mix of trend following and mean reversion. On average, it's a random walk. So somebody coming in from 30,000 feet, an academic coming in and studying things over decades with thousands of stocks, is going to see a random walk. But what they're really seeing is offsetting amounts of trend following and mean reversion. So a lot of what quants do is try to tease out for each specific asset or each specific price series the time scale on which there is trend following and the time scale on which there is mean reversion. A classic strategy is called value and momentum. So value is a form of mean reversion. Value says that if you know price has gone up a lot, it's probably gotten above its fundamental value, so it's going to come back down. Trend following says that the stuff that was going up is going to keep going up. So if you do these on the right scale, if you do value over a five or 10-year horizon, you do trend following over a one-year horizon, you do a little mean reversion over one day, you know, and you mix these things together, you can actually get very profitable strategies, even though to somebody who just looked at the data without being very rigorous about time scale would say, oh, it's a random walk. Because on average, it is a random walk. On average, the mean reversion and the trend following cancel out. This insight comes from episode 21, Simplifying High Yield Bonds Part 1, with Sheldon Stone in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about why investors choose to purchase riskier bonds. Absolutely. So we know that a company that is lower rated credit-wise, would have to issue higher yielding bonds, generally because the risk and return would be sort of proportional. So why do investors choose to purchase these bonds if they're so risky? Now, we do know there's a higher yield, but can you explain your thinking through that? Sure. Well, there is clearly a higher yield, and they're also less interest rate sensitive. And in a period where rates are rising, it is a real benefit not to have something with a very long duration. I assume you go over duration in subsequent conversations, but 
suffice it to say it's the interest rate sensitivity to rate movements. And I think it's risk that is diversifiable. So any particular high yield bond would be deemed risky. But if you can put them into a portfolio where you thoughtfully select the individual securities, you can manage that idiosyncratic risk, that one-off credit risk of a company by establishing a broader sampling. And I think in many ways, the best analogy is to the insurance industry. It would be very risky for any insurance company to only write one insurance policy. How could you possibly manage that risk? So what they do, of course, is they underwrite, which is what high-yield investors do through credit research. They diversify, getting a broad sampling. And most importantly, they need to build the right premium. They need to get the right rate. And for us, the rate is, of course, the interest rate or the promised return on the security. So I think it's misunderstood when people say they're risky. Clearly, they have risk, but if you can do a good job of determining what are fundamentally strong businesses, arguably not as mature or large as others or not having quite the credit metrics, you can get compensated very generously. And I think that was really kind of the brilliance that occurred in the late 70s by Michael Milken recognizing that you could manage this risk, you could diversify the risk. This insight comes from episode 22, Simplifying High Yield Bonds Part 2, with Sheldon Stone in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about what other factors investors look at when purchasing high yield bonds. Yeah, fantastic. So we've kind of gone over the basics of high yield bonds, and then we've covered the history, I guess, starting from the Revolutionary War and then coming full circle to the unprecedented actions taken by the Federal Reserve during the pandemic. And so I, I kind of like to unpack some of the more details in actually investing in high yield bonds. And I guess I'll start it off with, we know that when you're investing in a high yield bond, there's always the risk that the company will default on its debt or the company will go bankrupt. And therefore, that's something that the investor kind of has to accept when they are investing in these securities. But What are some of the other factors that you choose to evaluate when you invest in a high-yield bond? Things that maybe are unrelated to creditworthiness, but just other factors. Sure. Well, I think anytime one makes an investment, you want to compare it to the alternatives. So having some sense of relative value, in other words, with bonds, that would be the yield, maybe the yield in comparison to some credit metrics, maybe it's leverage, maybe it's duration, worrying about interest rate movements. But the key part of, I think, making a risky investment is to determine what the risk is, and everything has risk to it. It's naive to think even buying a low-risk government bond has risk to it, not a default risk but a purchasing power risk. You buy a bond that pays you 1.1% for 10 years. If inflation's more than that, there was a real risk that you would lose purchasing power. And with high yield, the risk that we mostly think about is losing principal dollars due to defaults. So 
I think the way to look at it as an intelligent investor is to determine as best you can what you think the downside is. In other words, if things went poorly, what would you be able to recover and ask yourself, can I accept that risk? Am I getting paid enough, meaning enough coupon or enough debt discount buying it at some lower than par price that would make it worth doing? That to me is how I would look at it. This insight comes from episode 23, Simplifying Business Education, part one, with Dr. Jeffrey Garrett in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about why colleges offer business programs and what differentiates it. Perfect. Yeah. And you've really brought up some good points. I think, you know, we're starting to think about business in terms of its actual impact on society and as well as sort of how it meshes with other topics. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I'd like to really get to know the underpinnings of the business education. And really, I don't think there's anyone better to speak with. But, you know, I'd love to know, what does it mean to get a business education? And, you know, why do colleges offer it? What differentiates it from maybe a traditional economics or management science degree? Yeah, Alex, really good questions. So let me answer in two different ways. The first way is that I've got a, you know, I have a simple sentence for how I think about business education, which is that business education gives you the skills to turn ideas into outcomes. And I like that sentence because for two reasons. One, ideas can come from anywhere. You know, you're both you're both really interested in business, but you're not taking business degrees. I think business schools have a symbiotic relationship with the rest of universities because great ideas can come from anywhere. What's distinctive about business education is the discipline to take full advantage of your idea, not to squander it, to make sure that great ideas get turned into great outcomes and then outcomes that change the world. So that's my first perspective on what business education is. From a kind of business model standpoint, I think undergraduate business degrees are currently the biggest degree in American higher education. It's something like one in five degrees is an undergraduate business degree. And I think that the demand for undergraduate business is actually going to go up post-pandemic. And the reason for that is that students and families are obviously really concerned about the cost of higher education. And if you're going to pay a high price for education, you really need to get value from it. And I think undergraduate business delivers a lot of value because we have historically been more concerned about careers and career pathways than quote unquote traditional parts of universities. You know, the traditional liberal arts education, I guess, is the clearest example. So because we've been focused on careers, I I think business schools are very well placed for the kind of, you know, the questioning of the value proposition that's been happening in society. And maybe the last, I said I'd say two things, but let me say a third thing, which is that, you know, we now talk a lot about active learning, right? Yes, there's a whole bunch of important stuff that you learn in a classroom from textbooks or from lectures. But we also know that A lot of the highest impact stuff for students is applying things you you learn in the classroom outside in the real world. And I think that the active learning philosophy has also been a core attribute of business schools for a long time. So 
I actually think coming out of the pandemic that the demand for high quality undergraduate business education is just going to be unprecedentedly high. This insight comes from episode 24, Simplifying Business Education Part 2, with Dr. Jeffrey Garrett in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him about trends in globalization. So, Dr. Garrett, I want to pivot a little bit, actually, to maybe your specialization, which is globalization. And, you know, one question some of our listeners were wondering is, how do you see globalization affecting international business relations in the coming future? Yeah, really big topic, Alex. So let me just, at the start, I'll, I'll try not to to say too much here, and, and then we can do follow-ups. But I think we are likely entering de-globalizing period. That was true pre-pandemic, but I think the pandemic has accelerated the de-globalization instinct to bring things back home. You just think about supply chains, right? We were worried that masks, we need a shorter supply chain for masks. We need a shorter supply chain for drugs. Now countries are hoarding their vaccines and not wanting to export them. So I think we're probably after 35 years where there was just more and more and more globalization, I think we've had a kind of peak globalization and it's probably going to reverse a little bit. So that'd be point one. Point two, the biggest element of that is US-China, where the geopolitical rivalry between the two countries is coming to be more powerful than the economic complementarity between the US and China, which I think has been a really big driver of economic growth, not only in China and the US, but around the world for the past 20 years. So US-China relations are just becoming more geopolitical, more about strategic competition and less about complementarities. What does that mean for the world of business? I think global business is going to continue, but things are going to get a little closer to home markets and direct US-China is going to be more challenging. So just look at a country that's booming right now, Vietnam. Why would Vietnam be booming? I think Vietnam booms because it's a supply chain alternative to China that's right next to the Chinese market. I think similarly, there are real opportunities for Mexico going forward for a similar reason. A lot of stuff that maybe we would historically have done in China, we now will want to do closer to the US and there's nowhere that's closer to the US than Mexico. So there, I think there are going to be great opportunities for global business, but it's not going to look the way it has looked in the last 20 years. And I actually think that's going to require business leaders to have a, a much subtler understanding of geopolitics because you can't just have an economic efficiency mindset to how you go global anymore. You've got to understand geopolitical realities and context in a whole range of countries. So a difficult time for global, but I think if you get it right, the upside is going to be incredibly high. This insight comes from episode 25, Simplifying Decision-Making Under Uncertainty, Part 1, with Annie Duke, in 2021 when I asked her about why learning different perspectives and lenses works so well in investing. That's so great that you were able to have this kind of like diversity of experiences. It's definitely a very unique kind of entrance into this world. And you know, it's very interesting that you also come from this kind of poker background because one of our previous guests, and he's someone who was the former chief risk manager at AQR Capital, he's a guy named Aaron Brown. He also said that 
the way he got interested in finance, and this was more quantitative finance, was also through kind of the Las Vegas mentality. He was saying something about how if you were able to test your ideas about trading and investing and they worked in Las Vegas, then you know it's not because you're lucky or people like you. It's because you actually have a really solid idea. And because these casinos, they're trying their hardest not to give you money. And so that's an interesting parallel between Las Vegas and the finance world. Now, I have a question that's more centered around this idea of using different lenses to look at finance. And you obviously have this kind of lens of poker, cognitive science, biases, that kind of world. And and a lot of people say to kind of read broadly. I mean, Howard Marks has said this. People who we've had on the podcast before have always mentioned, you know, learn about various kind of aspects about the world, learn about different perspectives, because they can kind of strengthen your insight into finance. I think Charlie Munger's word for it is called the expert generalist. And so I suppose that that works because when you look and read broadly, you can really understand that, you know, when you're investing, you can look at any kind of field or any kind of event in the world and say, hey, risk could arise from this. On the flip side of that, I guess, would be that opportunity can also arise from anywhere. But there's also kind of like this third thing that I guess reading broadly and kind of looking at finance through different perspectives, whether that's through cognitive science, neuroscience, history, you know, poker, is that, you know, you can really form your investment theses and your kind of investment strategies based on concepts that these other fields introduce. So my next question is, what do you think that learning finance from like poker and all these other fields, why does it serve finance so well? Like I mentioned a few reasons, but I'm curious if you have other reasons about that idea about learning finance from all these different perspectives rather than just the traditional kind of finance class perspective. Oh gosh, there's a lot there. So let's try to go through some of the things as to why that's a good thing. So first of all, I really recommend people read a book called Range which is by David Epstein. And I think that this really tackles this idea of why thinking more like a generalist can really give you a really big advantage. But let's kind of go through some of the reasons that that's a really good thing. So are you familiar with the concept of consilience? I am not familiar. Could you give a brief overview? Sure. So consilience is a term that comes, as I'm thinking about it, as derived from somebody named E.O. Wilson, which is someone people should read who are interested in finance. He's actually thinks a lot about biological systems. But the idea is that if you come at a problem from a bunch of different angles independently, and those different angles or disciplines converge on the same answer, then you should have much more confidence in the answer. If you're thinking about how systems behave, for example, and there's someone who's coming up from a strict finance perspective and someone who's thinking about biological systems, for example, and the person who's thinking about it from a biological standpoint comes up with a particular answer about the way that systems should behave. And the person who's thinking about it from the standpoint of a financial system, for example, comes up with a similar answer then you would have consilience. In other words, two independent thinkers thinking about it through completely different lenses coming to the same answer. So an example of something where you would think about consilience would be the concept of, for example, entropy, right? So there's lots and lots of different disciplines where we can be thinking about the world and the way the world behaves, where we end up at the answer of things tend toward entropy. So it's not just, you know, rolling a ball where there's gravity, right? Financial systems, also experience entropy, right? The idea of regression to the mean, you can see that across a a lot of different disciplines. So 
one of the reasons why we want to actually explore and think about things from very broadly, thinking about all sorts of different disciplines and all sorts of different angles and all sorts of different mental models that we could apply to a problem is that when those converge on the same answer, we should have more confidence in that answer and assume that the way that we're thinking about that is probably more robust. This insight comes from episode 26, Simplifying Decision-Making Under Uncertainty, Part 2, with Annie Duke in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked her about the role of luck in making decisions. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for walking us through that. And then sort of my last question through this series is, we have these models that we've talked about, deciding about uncertainty, making probabilities for these events, thinking in bets, but sometimes I guess and this is particularly true, I guess, in poker is you can have luck and you just need that one card, you know, down the river and and it shows up. So how do you think about luck? How do you approach it? How do you view luck as something that maybe slips past your model? Is there any really way to account for that? Yeah. So the fact that you're creating a probability distribution in the first place is acknowledging luck. So basically, Whatever you're doing, you're saying that I'm going to get a particular outcome. I'm going to get outcome A some percentage of the time. I'm going to get outcome B some percentage of the time. I'm going to get outcome C some percentage of the time. And then you're thinking about what is the knowledge that I have that's helping me to make that probability distribution. And then after you've actually made the decision, everything else is just luck. So the outcome that you happen to observe on any particular time is a matter of luck from your perspective. So that's true in poker, right? I mean, simply put, it's like, I can have two queens, you can have two tens. I'm going to win that eight, almost 82% of the time. And 80% of the time, you can hit a 10 and I lose. And that was completely out of my control. So the issue for decision makers is basically a couple of things. One is I want to be able to see the luck clearly. In other words, I need to acknowledge that it exists in order to be able to be a great decision maker. And what that means is that I need to be able to see the world as a probability distribution. And I need to be super, super focused on trying to get that probability distribution correct. And I need to recognize that very often, certainly in the short run, the outcome that I observe is not going to be indicative of whether my decision process was good or my probability distribution was correct, because that could be due to bad luck or or good luck, you know, just could be due to luck. Now, the trick comes in with not over-indexing on that idea. In other words, you have to recognize in the short run that luck is really the main influence over the outcome that you happen to observe. But you also have to say, over what period of time would I have to see this outcome occur for me to then assume that my probability distribution was wrong, right? In other words, that I was missing something. And there's two ways to handle that. One is just sheer iterations. So if I flip a coin 100 times and it lands heads 100 times in a row, obviously I'm going to assume that my idea that this coin is fair and is going to land heads 50% of the time and tails 50% of the time is probably wrong. So that's just a sheer numbers game, right? So I have some estimate of what the volatility of this world is. And then I try to figure out how many iterations do I need 
for me to be able to actually say, I need to adjust my probability distribution. So that's a numbers game. But then you also have, remember that there's an information problem as well. There's sort of twofold. One is that I know certain things about the world that are causing me to have this particular probability distribution. And when I think about why, how I think the world is gonna unfold, I have particular predictions about that, right? So a simple example would be, I might have some probability distribution about the way that the world will unfold because I think that Biden is gonna appoint Janet Yellen, right? But then it turns out that Biden doesn't appoint Janet Yellen. Okay, so that would be where I have a prediction about why I think that there's going to be a particular probability distribution, but then there are things that I am saying will be true of the world that will cause that distribution to occur in terms of things that will happen with interest rates or whatever, that where I'm saying there will be things that will be true of the world that are telling me that that's why I think that interest rates are going to be distributed in this particular way. So now the trick becomes not just a time problem, but also understanding if I look back and I say, what are the things that I knew at the time? Was there information that I missed? And if there was information that I missed, I should want to reincorporate that and change my probability distribution. Or if the world unfolds in a way that I didn't predict, then I should also want to go and change my probability distribution. Okay, so those are the three ways that we would think about changing the, the probability distribution in order that you can see what the actual influence of luck should be, right? Like how often am I going to observe particular results? Where we get into trouble circling back is that when we so want to stick to our model of the world is that even when new information reveals itself, we don't necessarily go and reevaluate what we our predictions of how the world is going to unfold. When we say that particular probability distribution that I had depended on particular things happening in between, like Janet Yellen, and then that doesn't happen, we still will stick with that probability distribution. And then what that means is that we aren't viewing the luck very clearly. So then what will happen is that we'll be making really bad bets on the future because we haven't adjusted our probability distribution. So this is where the real fight happens cognitively is that we don't want to over-index on short-term results because that could just be because of luck. But we want to have things that trigger going in and looking at what we believe to be true of the world. And those things that should trigger us to do that are either we get enough results in a row that violate our model, that we should go back and update our model, or we find out new information that if we had known it at the time would cause us to have a different model of the world, or we have particular predictions about the way that the future will unfold that don't actually hold true. And the problem for us is that we tend to want to hang on to our models so much that we that even when the things that should tell us to change exist, we won't actually change. And that's how we can get into a situation, for example, where we might view Putin's motivations as defensive. And then when he invades Crimea, we still view Putin's motivations as defensive because we just sort of do some mental gymnastics to incorporate that in. 
I know that that was probably more than what your question was. The point is that the fact that you have a probability distribution means that you're acknowledging luck. And what particular outcome that you view in the short run is going to be under the influence of luck. The problem that we have as decision makers is figuring out when is our model wrong versus when is the outcome that we're seeing just due to luck. This insight comes from episode 27, Simplifying Value Investing with Joel Greenblatt in 2021, when I asked him about the commentary surrounding quote-unquote value stocks and whether it's worth paying attention to. Yeah, and you know, you're talking about that verbiage around it that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, right? So and one of those kinds of things that I've observed is when we hear about this like notion of value stocks and growth stocks and the way you're defining it as, you know, buying something, figuring out what something's worth and then paying a lot less. And then when you hear about like these broad categories of stocks that are just categorized as value stocks, what do you really make of that? Like, is it really a value stock if, like you said, S&P or Morningstar just says that that's a value stock or it just kind of seems a bit odd that you would categorize something as value stock, describe this rotation. And then when value stocks are bid up and you hear of this rotation into value, are those stocks that have been rotated into, are they still value stocks anymore? So what do you make of sort of this like categorization of that? And how do you just navigate that in general? Yeah, I try to ignore it, right? A stock market is another phrase that's often used that resonates with me is the, the stock market is a market of stocks. We look at individual companies bottoms up and how they're categorized by other people shouldn't really matter. And so I would suggest investors just ignore those categories. It is true that many of the stocks that we're attracted to, even if we value them as holistic businesses and look at their prospects, Warren Buffett said growth and value are tied at the hip, meaning growth is a part of valuation. A lot of times because the companies we're looking for are out of favor for various reasons. Often they overlap with the typical definitions of value, but many times they're not. So I don't worry about it whether Amazon or Google is categorized as a value stock, as long as my valuation of those businesses tell me that the stock price is letting me own something that could be worth a lot more than what I'm paying. So that's really what I'm looking at. And you know, I, I think the problem comes with the fact that for most companies, it's very difficult to know what they're worth. I've taught at Columbia for over two decades. What I've told my students is, what do you do with maybe a technology business and the business is changing very quickly and the competitors are moving in and out? It's just very hard to assess, you know, what's going to be happening in the next few years and what's going to happen after that and how its whole marketplace is developing. How do you approach that? And my answer is always, well, skip that one, find one you can figure out. You know, Buffett would say there's no cold strikes on Wall Street, which means you can watch 20 pitches go by and no one's calling strikes on you. So you can just sit there until you wait for your good pitch. Doesn't mean you didn't miss a lot of good pitches that you should have swung at. But if the ones that you actually swing at are good ones for you, the outcomes will generally be good. And that's really all you have to worry about. You limit your errors of commission and you end up getting a good average over time. This insight comes from episode 28, Simplifying Value Investing Part 2, with Joel Greenblatt in 2021, when I asked him about whether there is any meaningful difference between value and growth investing. Yeah, there's quite a bit to unpack there. I mean, I think Warren Buffett once said in one of his letters that it's 
pretty fallacious to think that value and growth are different. As you mentioned, they're joined at the hip. And I think he also said that growth is just a part of the equation for value. So they're one and the same. And you know that other point you're making about how the so-called quote unquote high price tech stocks, it just kind of speaks to just value investing evolving with the current market environment. The stuff that was valued at like seven or eight X earnings is now not necessarily the best measure because just times are changing. We have cooler companies coming from the internet, from tech. And what matters more is, you know, things like how strong the business model is and not necessarily like an emphasis on something that represented an older time, right? Well, what I would say is this, you know, once again, Buffett, time is the friend of a good business and the enemy of a bad business. So another way to think about it is, let's say you think if you were in control of the business, it's worth $10 today and you can buy it at $6, that looks like a good margin of safety. But if the business is shrinking over time, meaning it's going to be less valuable in a few years, or it's the risk of being less valuable, or its earnings are potentially risky and might go down, and that $10 shrinks to $8, your margin of safety is shrinking. And if you compare that to something where you pay, you think something's worth $10 today and you pay $8 for it, but you think that $10 is going to grow to $12 or $14, then your margin of safety is actually growing over time. And that may be the better bargain. And so you're really looking at, you know, what's it worth today? What will be worth a few years from now? How confident you are of those things? And, you know, that'll keep you out of the value traps that, you know, you, I think, alluded to. This insight comes from episode 29, Simplifying Options Part 1, with Tom Sosnoff in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him to explain options in a simple way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for that intro. And, you know, I think it's really interesting how you've carved out your own niche in finance. That's really awesome. I kind of want to get into options. Could you explain for, you know, maybe viewers who don't understand options, have never really heard of options or derivatives, what is an option in the most basic sense? Options were originally created as a leveraged alternative to buying stocks. Somebody came up with the idea, okay, well, instead of putting up 100% of the capital required to buy a stock, let's put up a small amount of money. Let's have a certain expiration date and some different strike prices. And let's create a way where you can participate in the upside with a shorter duration expiring environment. And so options were created as a directional leveraged speculative bet. They have since become something very, very different, which is a capital efficient slash strategic way to play different underlyings. You can be right and, and lose money. You can be wrong and make money. They are the only financial instrument that is actively traded, liquid, efficient, and at the same time, completely strategic. So I think that that's the neatest part about options. And again, when I started, I didn't know any of this stuff. I had to figure it out kind of on a fly. And so, you know, it's taken me a while. I'm a slow learner. This insight comes from episode 30, Simplifying Options with Tom Sosnoff in 2021, when my co-host Alex asked him to explain the risks associated with options. Okay, interesting. And then moving on to sort of naked options, it seems like you are comfortable with traders playing naked options, but what are maybe some of the risks that should be considered with those? Five. The risk of anything, you know, the way the world works is in the world of trading and everything else. The only way that you get yourself in trouble is size. So when genius fails, 
it's always because somebody traded too big. Genius doesn't fail when you stay small and do whatever it is that you want to do strategically. Genius fails when your size gets too big. So I would say that the most important thing you can do as as self-directed investors is I, I feel no need that depends on the amount of capital you have. But if you have enough capital, I would much prefer to have undefined risk and naked options than I would define risk. But the whole key to long-term success and not getting yourself in trouble is keeping your size small. Because most people believe that the key to long-term success is risk management. And I call bullshit on that because I don't think risk management is fair or even possible in most cases. I think the only way you can totally control a situation is on order entry. So if you keep your size small, I think that's the most effective way to manage your risk. And there you have it. The best insights from episodes 1 through 30 are all there for you to learn, discuss with your friends over Christmas, and share with the world. Have a happy holiday season, and we'll be back with new episodes in 2022.